Welcome to the PapaCast. Interviews in the world of sports. Now here's your host, Bob Papa. Welcome to another edition of the PapaCast. little March madness as we get you set for the Sweet 16. And obviously, it's an exciting time of year. Can't beat last weekend, can it? Well, we're going to talk about it with CBS Sports analyst Jim Spinarkle. Go to Twitter, at March Madness TV, at CBS Sports. And Jim, last weekend was one for the ages, wasn't it, in the NCAA tournament with, with the amount of upsets that we saw and games just coming down to the wire. I know we say that every year, but last week seemed even better than before. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Bob. You know, first of all, I think, you know, you, we do say it every single year, and there are a handful of games that just blow your mind. Um, this year, I think, you know, it was interesting. I think... Michigan State losing kind of put everybody on notice that, hey, there could be some trouble lurking around the corner in the next couple of minutes of each and every game. Um, you know, there were some games that were, you know, typically like we had two of them with Villanova who played very, very well, who uh, beat their the competition uh, pretty soundly. But for the most part, I thought the tournament so far was fabulous. I thought the things like the Northern Iowa buzzer beater from, what, 50, 60 feet away was, was absolutely wild. I thought Texas A&M's comeback, uh, probably the best comeback in NCAA history, never mind um, NCAA tournament history. You know, with a, How about sports history? Forget about basketball. Uh, yeah, you, I guess you, you could put it up there with sports history. That's, I mean, and I was lucky enough to watch that live, so you know, sometimes you just see it on, on tape and it doesn't look, or replay, and it doesn't look as great, but it was wild coming down the stretch, so that was terrific, and you know, Vernon Lundquist and myself, we were over in Brooklyn doing the, those games, and we had... Um, you know, Iowa with a buzzer beater over Temple, and then we came back and had Notre Dame over Austin. Uh, Stephen F. Austin um, with their buzzer beater with the tip-in at the end by Fluger. I mean, so, you know, I experienced it firsthand with great games, with upsets. Um, you know, when Stephen F. Austin beat uh, West Virginia, that was a great upset. They just really, they West virginia West Virginia. And so we, we kind of had it personally where we experienced the real impact of the upsets in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, watching it on television across the country. It just, you know, that's why it's, you know, March Madness and uh, everybody just buys in in terms of seeing what's going to happen. All right. You are out west. You're in Anaheim. uh, So you'll be working the games in Anaheim. It's the Thursday, Saturday combination. And let's start with Oregon, who uh, will be taking on Duke. And this is kind of a special moment for you, isn't it? Being a Duke alum. Uh, it is. I've been. This is my 19th year doing this tournament, and have never done Duke uh, in the tournament. You know, I don't think it's been by design. I think it's just the way the cards have fallen. Um, so for me, it's exciting. Um, I would probably make the general statement, Bob, that whether I'm sitting on the sidelines being the broadcaster or not has no impact on whether Duke plays well or not. Um, <laughs> but, but it should be fair. It should be a funny, a fun game, just because you know Oregon is a an interesting team. I mean, for people who live back east, unless you're really a diehard fan, you probably don't stay up too late and watch their games out on the West Coast. So I think there's a little bit of unknown for them, maybe from central, you know, the central part of America East. But they're obviously a very good team. They won the pack. Uh, yeah, I mean, they won their um, uh, tournament, uh, both the regular season, and they also won the um, tournament this year. So from a Pac-12 standpoint, I mean, they, they've really done something they've never done in school history before. They're pretty well balanced. They shoot the ball well. They block shots. they got two guys, Bell and uh, Boucher, who block shots uh, down low. So it'll be interesting to see how Duke deals with it. 
listen, and they were on the ropes the other night. I mean, they could have been had. So that that kind of speaks to this tournament. They're the they're the number one seed, but they really they could have been had just even advancing to this point. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and you know, I guess they had St. Joe's, and um, you know, St. Joe's we had them in the. Uh, Atlantic 10 Championship, Vern and myself, and, uh, you know, they're a very, very good team. Phil Martelli did a terrific job with that team. So, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of teams that were pretty close to being bounced out of this thing, and, and you wonder sometimes, you know, I, I often think back to when, like in 78, when I played in it, there wasn't nearly as much, you know, doing something like this right now did not exist, right? The podcast concept, all the media, all the television really didn't exist. So the pressure now, I often wonder whether, you know, almost getting bounced out of it, do the kids come back and say, all right, we're lucky, you know, destiny is in our hands and we're supposed to be here, or do they say, boy, we just we just barely got bounced. Maybe the next game we are going to get bounced, you know? So it's I think there are a lot of moving parts with it, um, and, and the kids are under so much pressure in terms of, you know, every, every particular move they make is under the spotlight, especially coming down the stretch. And I think you can say the same thing about Texas A&M. Are they saying, hey, we should be the NCAA champs this year, or, boy, are we lucky and uh, we're going to have our hands full with Oklahoma and they're going to bounce us. So I think it, it plays both ways. Yeah, and uh, Jay Wright, the head coach at Villanova, cited the, the loss in the, in the Big East to Seton Hall as something that kind of snapped his team to attention. Not that you're saying losing is a good thing, but if you're going to lose like they did in their conference tournament and know that they're still going to get in, they kind of used that and that kind of springboarded them into what they've done so far. Tell me a little bit about this Duke team. I mean, Mike Krzyzewski and the Blue Devils, it feels like it's a rite of passage with the appearances in the Final Four. Is this a little bit of a different Duke team than we've seen before? I, I think it is. I think, you know, without Emil Jefferson, they, who, had, who had been playing before he got injured, obviously was going to be a very big-time impact player for them. But Coach K just figures out how to get it done, you know, with the personnel that he has. Now, with the personnel that he has, I mean, they're, they're obviously pretty good. you got Ingram, you got Allen, who are two very, very good players. Kennard has been playing well. I mean, he started off a little slowly and then started really creeping into it. So lately, uh, you know, he's been struggling a little bit with his jump shot, but he comes back and, and, and plays well um, last game out. So I think, you know, they're, they're a talented bunch. I think they're gritty. Um, you know, I think they play well together, and I think they understand that, you know, okay, we're in this together. We're going we're gonna to fight and scratch no matter what we have to do. Um, and they just seem to figure out a way to come through it. You know, keep in mind that Allen and Ingram are both, you know, when you look at their stats, Ingram is, is averaging 17 a game for the year and, and Allen 22, and they've both stepped up and are playing pretty well uh, when it comes to the last, you know the first couple of games here. But, um, you know, they, they haven't had, you know, before they got to the NCAA tournament, they were one of the few teams like Iowa that were not really playing you know, they didn't win like seven out of eight. I mean, I believe they were up and down. They might have won like four out of eight. So they were they were balanced. Iowa was struggling. They had lost five out of six coming in. So most of the teams, I always look at it, Bob, and I say to myself, yeah, it's great to play well in the first first weekend of the tournament. But I always look at it and say, look look at the last five games prior to that. And Villanova, I think, is a good example. Yeah, they lost to Seton Hall. And Seton Hall, as you well know, was a team that was just kind of on the rise with Isaiah Whitehead and the, and the sophomores coming together playing like seniors. So they were at the peak of their game. Nova loses. But if you look at the Nova, um, their schedule prior to that, they, they, they won like seven or eight straight games. So they have been building, and I think it's important to be building five, four or five games before your tournament 
championships, and then that that builds even further. Even if you lose like Villanova, you've at least had two or three weeks of solid basketball prepping yourself to get ready for the NCAA run of six games. You know, you're out in Anaheim, and you're going to be handling the action uh, as part of CBS Sports and uh, March Madness TV, at March Madness TV on Twitter, if you want to follow everything that's going on. You know, we talked. We started this interview with talking about all these upsets, but when you take a look at the West, it's one, two, three, and four. Somehow the chalk made it through as far as the seedings are concerned, which is the only region that has that. Uh, you're in the only group that has that. Why do, why do you think that's the case out West? Um, I, you know, if, if you look at it and you, you kind of say, you know, be honest with it, I mean, Texas A&M was lucky, right? They earned, they earned their spot, but they got some great bounces, so... That would have neutralized that in a hurry. So I think it's just a matter of a couple of bounces here and there and some luck and teams. You know, just, um, you know, it, it's hard to put a finger on why that's the only one. I think Oregon, you know, is a very, very good team. I think Duke is a surviving type team because of, uh, you know, just the way they play. Texas A&M is, is, is an interesting type of, of team. You know, three, three guys hitting in double figures. So they just earned their way through it. Um, you know the SEC not great this year, but I think they you know they show that they're the, the you know the cream of the crop there. And Oklahoma, I don't know if you've seen them much, Bob, but they they shoot the basketball really well. They go up and down the floor. They love to attack. They shoot the the three the three ball just like Duke. Their numbers are better than than Duke's overall in the season. Duke shoots it at like just about forty percent, and uh, but Oklahoma shoots it at forty three. So they're four of them are different types of teams. I think they have a little bit of survival. And I think, you know, when you look at an Oklahoma team, there's some experience in there in terms of guys, you know, I think three or four of their guys are seniors that play most of their time. You know, Buddy Heald is a senior. He came back. Um, you know, Cousins, one of their guards, is a, is a senior. And Woodard is a junior. So they have real good experience. And then they have Spangler, who's a pretty much a double-double up front. So they really, for all intents and purposes, have three seniors and a, and a, and a junior who's played as much as a guy who's been around five years. So I think it's a combination of that. Um, and when you look at, you know, a team like Oregon, for example, they have a couple of seniors, but, you know, they're a blend as Duke, and Duke is very, very young. So to really characterize why these teams are there, I don't know, but it's just maybe they were fortunate enough just to go under the radar with the upsets. It's simple as that. Before we hit on the other regions quickly, um, I want to ask you about coaching, Jim, because college basketball obviously is – a lot of pressure, and we talked about all these great finishes. And we've also seen, you know, some games that just were mishandled down the stretch. You played in it. You've been a part of it. You've broadcasted for a long time. Can you sort of put into words the value of an experienced coach like a Coach K and what that means in those final two and a half minutes? Or even let's just take it to the last five minutes and how you manage that end of the game because it's almost like, a puzzle, uh, and how you start stacking it with five minutes to go can maybe dictate how it plays out in that last minute or so. And then sometimes you have to adjust what you're going to do, start fouling or whatever the case might be, utilizing your timeouts, making sure you get the, the ball in the right people's hands for the right shots. But how important coaching is, especially late in these games with all this pressure, considering that these are still college students playing this game. I think, you know, there are a lot of moving parts that I think of with that question in terms of my answer to that. I think number one is whether that coach on the sidelines has been there before 
and basically continues to enforce and emphasize the confidence and positive side of things with with five minutes left. And it might sound something as simple as, hey, guys, we've been here before, we've won these types of games, and we're prepared for it. Now, that's that's great to say something like that, but the question becomes, are they prepared and they ready to execute under really, really tough environments in terms of the, the clock and the score? Um, I think the next thing you have to think about is is just how well prepared you are in terms of when the when the situation starts to change, how fast you can process what you're supposed to be doing. Are your assistant coaches providing you with, hey, we have one or two timeouts left. Hey, we have a foul to give. We're over the bonus. Who's shooting free throws well for them? Who's not? Who's playing well for our team? Who's not? Um, and then when you start to really get down to the last you know, minute, minute and a half. I mean, part of my preparation, Bob, when I talk to these as many as I can, I'll ask them questions. Coach, let me ask you a strategy question. If you're down three possessions with a minute and ten seconds left on the clock, are you fouling or are you not fouling? And I want to hear their answers to that because it gives me an understanding. A, it helps me reinforce because I spend a lot of time watching the end of basketball games when they're on. I'll, I'll watch two teams that I don't even know if it's the last minute of a game just to see what they're doing and what the announcers are talking about so I can prepare and, and get those situations in my mind so I'm ready to analyze them when I have to on the fly. So I want to hear what those coaches say in those situations. I also want to hear, I ask the question as much as I can, what are you going to do, if you're, what's, the, what's your plan if you're, you're up three and the other team has the ball with five seconds left? Are you going to foul or are you not going to foul? Were you making judgments on the fly with that when if the ball's coming down the floor in a hurry, um, we're, we're going to foul because we can't get prepared for that, so let's just foul for it. Or if it's after a timeout, we're going to play it out because we know we're prepared and we've had time to talk about it. So I think there are so many different things, and knowing the rules really helps too, the little different things. And I think one of the things, Bob, that I think goes under under-noticed and under-talked about, and I think it came up in the Texas A&M game. If you think about the end of that game, because I watched it for three times, the replay of the last ten seconds of it, the possession arrow was in the favor of Texas A&M, if I'm correct. So what does that mean when that last kid threw the ball and tried to throw it down at the feet of the player who was trying to knock it out of bounds? He could have basically held on to that ball, put it under his shirt, and they could have called a timeout. Now, they have to take the ball out wherever he is. I, I get that. But he would not have turned the basketball over. So you have to know these rules. You have to be constantly thinking about it and the strategies of who's out there. And uh, I mean, there's a lot of things going on. And if you haven't practiced those during the course of the season, day in and day out, to ask a kid who's, let's call him just an average of 20 years old who may never have been in this situation, he's playing in the NCAA tournament, and, oh, man, if we lose, we're out of this thing, whether he's a freshman or a senior, I think um, there's a lot of moving parts to it. and I love it. I love when the games are closed because I try to put my hat on and think about, okay, if I'm in the situation, you know, during a commercial, you know, thank God, you know, the play-by-play guys like Vern Lundquist, he has to worry about reading the, the promo that's coming back possibly. But I'm spending that one minute of time in the commercial processing what might happen down the last 30 seconds to 45 seconds of this game. So I'm prepared to analyze it the way a coach would. That's Jim Spinarkle. He'll be with Vern Lundquist in Anaheim in the West Regional. Uh, it all gets underway on Thursday. Oregon versus Duke. Texas A&M versus Oklahoma. I'm not going to ask you for predictions because, you know, you're calling the games, and I know guys don't like to make picks on games that they're going to call. People then listen to it, and they think that you're swayed one way or another. So 
Let's just move to the Midwest, touch on these games pretty quickly. Obviously, the ACC, very strong. You got Virginia, the top seed in the Midwest. They're taking on Iowa State. And then you got the Zags taking on Syracuse. I'll get to that in a second, but what is it about this Virginia team that you found impressive this year? I th- I pretty much they're a team. They play together as a team. I get the impression with them that nobody really cares who the leading scorer is. They complement one another very well, and, and they're obviously very, very well coached in the style that they play. And I think, you know, because of the ACC, you know, they've played enough different types of styles that they are prepared fairly well for playing in the tournament. Um, don't forget that Iowa State's pretty good. Um, you know, I, I mean, that, that should, I mean, I, I don't think there's a bad game on this, you know, in the Sweet 16 right now. Nothing, nothing jumps out at me that says, hey, you know what, Virginia's going to blow out Iowa State or uh, the Zags are going to take down Syracuse and blow them away. I think, I think the matchups, even though, you know, you have a, a one in four for Virginia and Iowa State and then an 11 and 10 with Syracuse and, and, and the Zags, um, you know what, everything is stacked up. I mean, the numbers stack up pretty good when you think about it. Um, in terms of the the competitiveness of this and where we're headed for a nice another great Thursday, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. All right. So basically, Syracuse has basically uh, flipped the bird to all of the naysayers because let's face it, when the brackets came out, if there was one school that was looked at as you know how the heck did they get in? They shouldn't have gotten in, and maybe that was a spot that should have gone to Monmouth or some other team. Not only did they win their first game. But now, lo and behold, they're in the Sweet 16 as a 10 seed. So I'm guessing the guys on the selection committee feel pretty good now about this selection. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not behind the scenes with the selection committee. And, you know, I think they have one of the most, the most difficult jobs in sports trying to figure this all out sometimes. And, uh, you know, I think overall they, they do a, a marvelous job with it. But Syracuse, you know, the, the, the old, how do, we, how do we go against their zone? I mean, um, you know, it, it you know, it looks like a two three, it plays like a three two. I mean it has it's interchangeable parts at times. They know it very well. They usually have the personnel that makes sense for it. They don't try to confuse you in terms of switching defenses a whole lot. Here's what here's who we are. Take your best shot and see what happens. Uh you know, Mark Few is pretty good at what he does though, and and Mark Few um we'll be looking at this film and saying okay what's where are the weak spots we all know the weak spots in a zone usually are in the middle of the floor right by the free throw line but you better get a guy in there who can handle the basketball and make decisions on the fly because if you run a big guy who's 6'10 in there and he catches it then you're you're looking for doom if you come through with a big guy so i would think you know watch for the zags to run some of their smaller you know they're two guards or small forwards you know you know a lot of teams are playing three guards now so they're two larger guards to go through the middle of the floor there to catch it, either to shoot it or make something happen. Because at the end of the day, the way, the way to beat a zone is to figure out how can you get an advantage. You know, Bob, I, I often speak about, you know, we all talk about a fast break, right, when you have a two-on-one, and what you're looking to do is get the advantage on a two-on-one so you can get a layup. So that means that two-on-one converts to a one-on-zero, and people think of that only in transition, but for the most part, that's how the game is played in the half court. So when you catch the ball in the middle of the floor, where can I make a move from the foul line and in to get one of their big guys in a situation where I now have a two-on-one and it happens to be ten feet close, you know, within 10 feet of the basket? So that's what I would watch for to see how the Zags execute um, in the free-throw line and also the baseline against that zone. All right, let's move over to the east. you got uh, North Carolina, the top seed, taking on Indiana. Indiana's been fun to watch. 
And then you have Notre Dame, who you saw last weekend in Brooklyn taking on Wisconsin. Uh, size up this North Carolina-Indiana game and, and, and what you like about each team. Um, I, I think this will be an interesting team. I mean, Indiana is number five. I think they've played better than a number five all season long. Whether or not that seeding was the right number, I'm not, I'm not questioning the number five as far as a seeding, but they have played consistent. I think they're a very good basketball. Tom Crean has put them together and got them in the right spot. I think Carolina is similar to Kansas. I think when you, if you look at teams and, and try to analyze them and say, okay, if you could pick out five minutes of the best basketball that they've been playing and just analyze five minutes, I think North Carolina and Kansas would jump off the, off the table for you as, as being the five minutes of, of perfect basketball that these two teams and the talent they have. I think they, the two of them are probably the front runners to win it all. Um, you know, but then again, Villanova, when we had them last weekend against Iowa, Iowa was at one point a number three team in the country. They struggled coming down the end of the regular season. For five, forget five minutes in this example. Twenty minutes of the first half, Jay Wright's team played as well as any Jay Wright team probably has in his career there at Villanova, and as well as any team in the uh, in the NCAA has for that period of time. So, I think Carolina probably edges them because of the talent, and the depth they have. But um, you know, I, Indiana doesn't go away without taking a couple of haymakers themselves. Yeah, it seems like at times North Carolina will just fall asleep for just that little bit of period, that little lapse, and, uh, you know, it can doom them. That's going to be a fun game to watch. You you got a real good look at Notre Dame last weekend. Obviously, they survived. They've got Wisconsin. Is this a different style kind of matchup for Notre Dame? Uh, Well, it is compared to Stephen F. Austin, Bob. Yeah, I mean, they, um, to me, you know, that style, you know, if, if, Truth being told here, when, when they were set up against West Virginia, I read some things where people were saying, uh, don't underestimate this Austin team because they very well could beat West Virginia. And I'm just saying, you know, West Virginia's been playing in the Big 12 all year. They've been banging heads with some of the best teams in the country. And when Austin came in and rattled their cage, and I mean they really rattled their cage, I was like, wow, this team is pretty good. And I thought, quite candidly, they'd come back and give – I did think – truth being told again that they would give Notre Dame everything they could handle because of the way they pressure and they not only do they pressure but they pressure you if you're a right-handed player they're forcing you to go to your weak your weak hand your left hand in that example as much as any team as I've seen so yeah this is Notre Dame played this this rattling team and now they go to Wisconsin which is more of the methodical team so it'll be interesting to say I think this matchup is better for Mike Bray's team than the uh, the Austin game just because these two teams kind of they kind of look a little bit alike and they play alike. So I, th- I think it's going to come down to, you know, not only hitting your threes, but if, if Notre Dame, which which changed a little with Vasoria and uh, Jackson driving at the basket, I think they have to continue to do that. Um, but this one's going to be close. I mean, there are two teams. This is the six and seven, right? So you have, you know, Syracuse and, and the Zags, and you have Wisconsin and Notre Dame, you know, with the six seven and one's the ten eleven. So this. I think it's. I think they're well matched. It'll be interesting to see which one comes out. I think, you know, Notre Dame has been playing well though. All right, let's go over to the East quickly. Uh, you talked about Villanova, and you know, sort of the way they've taken on this tournament. Jay Wright's team trying to make some noise here in the Sweet Sixteen. They got Miami. It's a two-three game, and then you got Kansas, Maryland. First, uh, just give me a little breakdown of Miami, Villanova. Well, I think, you know, Miami is a terrific basketball team. You know, guards have been playing well um, and have been really, you know, leading that team. I think consistently all season long they've played well. Villanova, like I mentioned, absent the um, the Big East Tournament final to Seton Hall, 
they've been playing very well and prepping themselves for a good run in the NCAA tournament. They got the uh, the elephant off their back in terms of being able to advance to the Sweet 16. So so maybe the pressure's off a little bit there. Um, but you know, pretty much, uh, you know, if you have Ochefu, who's their big guy underneath. If he can catch and make some plays and defend real well to clog up the middle, I think that's going to be one of the keys. And a lot of it comes down to shooting. Teams that, that pride themselves on being able to shoot the basketball, and Villanova does that, I think that you, the one thing they have to do is really be willing to mix it up, though. Don't sort of just settle. You know, If the shots are going down from the three, then keep ripping them. But if they're not, if you're, if you're two for seven to start this game, you've got to make sure that you know, if you're Villanova, you mix it up a little bit and head to the basket. Then you have Bill Self, head coach at Kansas. They're the top seed in the South. They've got Maryland. Um, I mean, I, this matchup is intriguing to me. I, I always like Bill Self coach teams and, and the way they play. And they just seem – they. Seem, I mean, as good as the year that Maryland has had, it just feels to me like Kansas has got that, got that little something that we could see them in the Final Four. Yeah, I agree with you because I've seen Kansas play at certain points where they've looked just unbeatable. Um, Bill Self has done a, a marvelous job again this year. Um, you know, if, if you think about during the season, this was the year that Bill Self and Kansas were going to get knocked off the throne, and somehow this guy continues to figure it out. He's just a terrific coach with a great demeanor, gets the most out of his players, and, you know, he's got a talented bunch this year. Maryland, on the other hand, I think, you know, I think, one of the keys probably in this game will be will be rebounding, making sure that Maryland, you know, rebounds the basketball. Um, and and Mello, their, you know, their point guard um, has to play well also to lead this. But the guy who's really stepping up, too, is, you know, lately has been Jake Lehman, who's played really well for them a couple of games. So, you know, Maryland has, you know, Maryland has the talent, Bob, to be able to play with Kansas. Whether or not they can play a consistent 40 minutes will be interesting because I'm kind of guessing that Kansas will be ready for this. And my guess is that they won't let the throttle down too much when it comes to the 40 minutes. I mean, they may have a couple of lulls here and there, but they seem to self-correct pretty quickly. All right, uh, Jim Spinarkel and Vern Lundquist. They'll be in Anaheim, part of CBS Sports' coverage. Follow it on Twitter, at CBS Sports, or at March Madness TV. So, Jim, here's the final question. We're going to go right off the beaten path because I know you're a fun guy. Here we go. Um, I like to end the podcast this way. Your favorite meal, and I don't mean healthy, if you had a go-to meal and you could sit down with a nice cold beer or a bottle of red, whatever your favorite drink is, what would it be? Well, I'm a, I'm a white wine guy. I'm not a red wine guy. And I have had one beer in my life, or maybe more than one beer in my life. Um, I think I'm going to have to go with a real, real good steak. You have a real good steak. And you can invite anybody, past or present, to a dinner. You can invite three people to dinner that you'd love to sit down and pick their brain. Who would you invite? All right, I think I might start with somebody like John F. Kennedy would be number one. I think I'd have to throw a pope in there, so I'll just say a pope. <laughs> pope for 200, Alex? <laughs> pope for 200, right. Um and who would be the third? Let's go with a sports figure. Um, you know, Muhammad Ali would not be a bad one. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that when you ask that question, that um, that no matter what I asked, they would answer honestly. Yes, the door is closed. There's nobody in the room. You have unlimited amount of time, 
And this is just four guys trading stories and saying, hey, let me tell you what really happened with the Bay of Pigs. Or, <laughs> you know, here's what really happened with... Yeah, I think I'd go that route right now. Kennedy, Muhammad, Muhammad Ali, and, and, uh, and a Pope. Jim, great stuff. We appreciate the breakdown. We're looking forward to the telecast on Thursday and Saturday from Anaheim. You teamed up with Vern Lundquist. One of our dear friends, and, and you guys make a wonderful team. Enjoy the ride. Enjoy the weekend. And we appreciate your time. And thanks for all of your insight breaking down the Sweet 16 here on the PapaCast. You're welcome, Bob. Thank you uh, for having me. And, and you're right. Vern has been nothing but a joy both uh, during the broadcast and away from the broadcast. We have had just uh, – this is the second year we've been doing it, and he's been nothing short of a delight at both ends of it. So I'm really looking forward to the Sweet 16. Jim Spinarkle. He led Duke to the 1978 NCAA Finals. First-round draft pick, the Philadelphia 76ers, and longtime voice of the NCAA tournament on CBS, joining us here on this edition of the PapaCast.